Welcome to the Achieve Results Nutrition and Wellness Podcast, the ultimate guide to feeling and looking your best. Join me, your host, as we embark on an exciting journey to discover the power of nutrition, exercise, sleep, recovery, and mental performance. Get ready to be inspired, motivated, and uplifted as we uncover the secrets to unlocking your full potential and living your best life. Whether you're a fitness enthusiast, a wellness warrior, or just looking to improve your overall well-being, this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and let's get ready to elevate our performance together. We are back again today with another incredible guest. This one's a mouthful, so bear with me as I get through it, but this guy has earned every single one of these accolades, so I want to make sure I get them right, all right? So I want to introduce you guys today to Dr. Mike T. Nelson, PhD, MSME, CSCS, CISSN, and Mike is a research fanatic who specializes in metabolic flexibility and heart rate variability, as well as an online trainer, adjunct professor, associate professor at the Carrick Institute, presenter, creator of the Flex Diet Cert, kiteboarder, and somewhat incongruously heavy metal enthusiast. <laughs> so Mike does a lot of stuff. Mike's a busy man. So he has a PhD in exercise physiology and a master of science in mechanical engineering, biomechanics. The techniques he's developed and the results Mike gets for his clients have been featured in international magazines and scientific publications and on websites across the globe. In his free time, he enjoys spending time with his wife, lifting odd objects, reading research, and kiteboarding as much as possible. You can find more out about Mike at his website, www.miketnelson.com. Okay, Dr. Mike T. Nelson, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Hi, how are you doing, man? Great, can't complain. Dr. Mike, tell us a little bit, just give us a quick intro for those of you who don't know you. We got introduced to your laundry list of accolades and whatnot. Let the people know a little bit more about what you do and where you came from, and then we'll get this thing off and running. Yeah, so I do a variety of things probably more on the nutrition side i guess you would say for exercise physiology and nutrition mostly for performance and body comp i'm a social professor at the caring institute i work with some clients through my own business extreme human performance and some other clients through rapid health with uh Dan Garner, Dr. Annie Gelpin, Anders, Doug, all those guys over there. Just working with the ketone company with Tecton. <clears throat> They're looking at a new ketone ester. So trying to help with uh, some of the studies. Like how would you look at everything from performance all the way through potentially pathologies, concussion, uh, traumatic brain injury. Just pretty interesting. Yeah. And yeah, finishing up a triphasic two book with Coach Cal Dietz, which I'm not sure when it'll be out, but hopefully... Sooner than later, that's super excited. It's all new material, which will be fun. I'm just excited for it to be out because it's been a extremely long process. <laughs> <laughs> and then doing a book on <clears throat> metabolic flexibility for human kinetics with Gianna is the RD on that. And yeah, haven't been out kiteboarding much this summer at all. We're down in South Padre for over there for four weeks in the spring, which is pretty fun. I hit my goal of a 20-foot jump, my little <clears throat> measuring device that is I had 26 feet, which I'm not sure if I really hit 26 or not, but I'll take it. It's generally relatively accurate. And yeah, still lifting, working on picking up the Thomas Inch dumbbell, hopefully within the next probably two to three years, somewhere around there. All right, there we go. 
good. I like that you got the long-term goal set. Yeah, and you're working yeah. on the on the <clears throat> book with Gianna uh, Massey. Or I guess she's yeah. married now. But yeah, that's why I didn't say her last name because I don't know if she's officially <laughs> changed her last name. Or not. <laughs> I should probably figure that out. It's a disaster. I talked to her the other day. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Good deal. That's really cool. I'm excited for that one to come out and. That's what I wanted to really dive into at, at, off the start today is this topic of metabolic flexibility. I, I know you are the guy when it comes to metabolic flexibility and, you know, teaching it to people and your understanding of it. So I would love just to dive in into like just exactly what is metabolic flexibility, start there and then maybe kind of transition that into what is it and, and who it's for, how it would best serve people. Sure. As like in fitness, especially when you talk about nutrition, everyone wants to have an argument about what the best macronutrient is, which to me seems like such a bizarro type argument. Is <clears throat> you have the people of, oh no, carbohydrates are bad, they're evil, they're gonna they kill you, and then you have the opposite of, oh, you need carbohydrates for performance, and you need really high amounts of carbohydrates, and there's still some stuff floating around about too much protein will cause your kidneys to fly out of your back and the other side of the room and damage them. And it just seems like everyone wants to vilify one thing or the other is the way to write a diet book, just vilify gluten or even for God's sakes, now vegetables or whatever is going to be next. And then you can sell a diet book. And there is a little bit of truth to some of those things, right? Is from working with lots of clients. Yeah, I've had some clients who vegetables didn't really go very well due to digestive issues. Does that mean I'm going to tell all my clients with good digestion, oh, vegetables are bad, don't eat those horrible things now? That doesn't make any sense. So with metabolic flexibility, if you just narrow it down to the two main fuels you're using, you have carbohydrates on one end, fat on the other end. So for metabolic flexibility, how well could you use carbohydrates under certain conditions? How well could you use fat for energy and performance under certain conditions? And then how well can you switch back and forth between the two? So you're looking at carbohydrate use, fat use, and then switching back and forth between those. So you're trying to respect more what's actually going on with physiology instead of just demonize one whole macronutrient group. Amazing. Yeah. And and can you touch more on the switching back and forth? Because I yeah. I think most people understand like, all right, when I'm more active, I'll be utilizing more carbohydrate. When I'm more at rest, I may be utilizing um, more fat. But how do you create a situation where the body is able to actually switch from one to the other or where you when you need it to switch from one to the other? To me, how well you can switch or move from one thing to the other thing is one of those principles of physiology that's not talked about it much. So I call some just HDR, human dynamic range. So if you imagine that carbohydrate use and fat use are like a, a barbell, we would want to expand the spectrum out as far as possible. And then we want to be able to move back and forth between the two. So an example would be, let's say you just had a huge high carbohydrate meal. So your body is going to switch to use carbohydrates mainly as a fuel but once it's done that, how fast does it get back to baseline, which would be more of a fat use because let's say you're not lifting at that point. You're just hanging out watching TV or whatever. If we have someone who <clears throat> maybe is metabolically inflexible, maybe a type two diabetic, or they've got some metabolic issues, you'll see that they hang out there longer and it takes much longer for them to come back to baseline. Sometimes they can't go up as high either. So in studies, what you'll see is that it takes longer for them to reach sort of a peak 
the peak of which they hit will be lower. So the response is squashed and that curve gets flattened out. So they end up staying and using carbohydrates a little bit longer, but they actually don't use them as well or as effectively. It's very similar to if you look at an aura glucose tolerance test, we give you a whack ton of like 80 grams of glucose. You'll see there's a big spike and then you'll see it gradually over a couple hours come back down to baseline. That'd be a normal response. And some people that peak may be a little bit too squished or it might be super spiky and they're just dropping too fast or they're taking forever to come back down to baseline. It's a similar idea that you want to be able to upregulate as high as you possibly can. And then when that is quote unquote done, you want to be able to come back down to baseline again. It's very similar to heart rate. If you're doing, let's say, some horrible 20 rep front squats, your heart rate's going to be elevated super high. But then as you're resting, you want it to come back down to baseline faster or heart rate recovery. So it's a very similar idea of you want to be able to respond to the stimulus as it's presented. And then as it's run its course, you want to be able to switch and get back to the next thing that's going on. Perfect. Yeah. Amazing. And I guess my question is because the majority of my audience is more like general population, just people in the fitness world trying to eat healthier, sure. live that healthier lifestyle without the ability to measure this stuff. Is there <clears throat> any actions that you would recommend taking or is there any way for people to know if they actually are becoming more meta metabolically flexible? Yeah. So the two things that I use as sort of field tests that anybody can do, they don't have equipment and they're not going to prick their finger and take measurements or do all sorts of they're not weirdos like I am and have a metabolic cart at their house in their garage to do a bunch of testing that costs thousands of dollars and stuff. On the carbohydrate side, I call it the two Pop-Tart test. Can you have for breakfast two Pop-Tarts and then simply how do you feel? If you feel like you're going to take a glucose insulin induced nap under your table for two hours and you can't string two thoughts together, probably not the greatest at using carbohydrates. On the other end of the spectrum for fat use, can you do about a 19 to 24 hour fast and feel pretty good. Go about your normal days, maybe do some moderate exercise. Yes, you're probably going to be hungry, but it would look from the outside relatively normal-ish. If you can do those two things on the carbohydrate and the fat side, odds are you're probably pretty metabolically flexible. Yeah, perfect. I love that. And I think that's one way that I like to think about it. Is I guess explain it to people as well. Do you feel like you must eat every two to three hours you're yes. getting like angry you go yes. going through these crazy like mood swings or energy highs and lows or things like that then you probably know that you're not super metabolically flexible right yeah and that gets into the transitions the theory is that you probably can't transition or down regulate to use fat quite as well and like when the system gets really dysregulated you get kind of stuck on the glucose side we don't really have another alternative fuel to use really well we don't really can't tolerate these kind of drops in blood glucose. So let's signal the brain and the body to be like, hey, just eat more carbohydrates. So it's a working theory. And that gets into whole models of appetite based on lipostatic, which is a fat model and the carbohydrate model. And the truth is it's probably somewhere in between. But in practice, I see the exact same thing you said. Like someone who's, man, I eat every two to four hours or I get really hungry and I get mad and I just don't feel good. That's, that's not normal. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. And what do you recommend for people that are in that situation? Are you going to go to a more fat adapted diet for a little while, higher fat, or are you going to push them in terms of cardio based exercises? What's your go to? Yeah, there's a bunch of things you can look at. On the macronutrient side, I'm probably going to reduce carbohydrates to start with. So we're going to remove the thing that they're having a little bit of reactivity to. Like you said, you can play around with adding a little bit more fat. You could play with more fiber, more protein. Usually more protein definitely seems to help quite a bit for most people. Once you've done that, then I'm thinking, okay, why are they having these sort of weird things? If I'm able to use technology, I'll look at heart rate variability to get an idea of some stress levels or just self-report. Do you feel stressed? Because that's going to slam them more towards that sympathetic stress side, which is going to keep pushing them towards carbohydrates to alleviate that stress. Sleep is a big one. How long are they sleeping? How good is their sleep? Digestion. The other thing I wish I would have done sooner is actually looking at, I probably did a pretty good job of looking at overall muscle mass. If they have more muscle, that's probably going to be a better position than less. Body comp's going to play into that. The thing I wish I would have looked at sooner was VO2 max or just their aerobic fitness level. What I've noticed in a lot of those people is it's quite low sometimes. And the analogy I use is that I don't know, you might be old enough to remember the Yugo, the little three-cylinder car that was like a squirrel in a shoebox. It was pretty horrible. Or was it the Ford Festiva or the Toyota Yaris? Like these, you're a tall dude, like these tiny little cars that looked like a clown car. Yeah, sorry to cut you off, but I used to ride to school every day in a Ford Festiva. Oh, there you go, yeah. uh, Grade 10 through 12, buddy. My my best friend, that's what he (laughs) drove. We had, I was 6'4", he's 6'3", we had a buddy that was 6'6", and another one that was 6'5", and we all used to fit in that Ford Festiva somehow. I'm not even exaggerating. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Did you have a sunroof where you just stick your head through the sunroof then? or Somehow it had more space than you than it, than it looked, but yeah, sorry. Anyway, back, yeah. back on track now. But. Yeah, no, totally. If you have a very small VO2 max or a small aerobic engine, it's just generally going to be quite difficult compared to if you have a bigger aerobic engine. You're just going to use a lot more fuel. Odds are your partitioning is, is going to be a little bit better too. So the analogy I use is if I take my little Ford Festiva, I can redline it and get to the grocery store, but I'm going to impart a huge amount of stress just to get an average performance out of it. Compared to if I have a Corvette engine, I'll probably get the same speed with a fraction of the RPMs. So I can get to the same end result, but I'm doing it at a, a fraction of the stress level too. Yeah, I love that. And, and I think that's, is like you said, that's the thing that you notice the people who have the muscle mass, I think is the biggest thing because that's totally. essentially the housing for all of this stuff. If we just want a bigger garage to essentially stuff all this extra, whatever, blood, carbohydrate, dietary fats and things yeah, that we're eating. Much bigger sink. Yeah, totally. Like that's obviously going to be the winner in most cases there because it does create a ton of flexibility for people. And it also creates a a better ability to like overeat at times and not have such a drastic, call it a negative effect or a bounce back effect from those larger meals. And then, yeah, the max is is huge. Again, I think that's going to play a really big role into the way that your body is utilizing the nutrition that you're putting into it. Yep, I agree. And yeah, I was going to say something on that, but I think it's just that both of them are useful. It just depends on what angle you're looking at it from. Imagine someone who has a lot of muscle versus not much muscle, and they both go for a walk. The person who has a lot more muscle is literally going to use more fuel just to go for a walk. If you have a bigger engine overall, a bigger chassis, bigger frame, you're just going to burn a lot more fuel. And the more I think you can 
pull energy through the system at a higher level or kind of a higher flux rate, just everything else just seems to work better. So for people listening, if you can be weight stable at maintenance on 3,500 calories a day compared to someone else who's at 2,000 calories per day, yes, calories matter. They're both weight stable. So calories in and calories out are equated. I would much rather go with the the 3,500 in and out per day. Like you're just moving so much more energy through the system. Just a lot of other things just work so much better. Yeah. So you'd rather be the the gas guzzling truck than than the Prius in this case? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) All right. Good stuff, man. Yeah, no, I I think that's awesome. So hopefully that really helps people understand the metabolic flexibility because I do get a lot of questions about that. Mm -hmm. Just in the diet world, I think it's something that's becoming a pretty popular topic. A lot of people are starting to, I know you've been talking about this. I met you in Costa Rica, what, six years ago and you were on it. Yeah. You were heavy into it at that point even. So I know you've been on top of this stuff for a very long time, but I think it's one of those things that's certainly starting to catch some steam. People are starting to think about this stuff, right? Yeah, which is great. I started looking at it 15 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seems crazy to think about. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. No, that's awesome. I did want to talk about on that topic as well is where does this fit? I think we've explained where it fits in terms of just general population. We just, in terms of health, this is a really great way to in, improve people's health and their ability to mm-hmm. utilize their nutrition properly and not run into blood sugar issues and things like that. Where does it fit into the more athlete and just very active person population? Are you recommending whatever the high carb, high protein meals around training and then high fat, low carb meals and whatever high fat, higher protein meals outside of training to somebody who's burning a lot of energy on a regular basis? Yeah, for those cases with more of the athletes, I would say a general template I use is higher protein around 0.7 grams per pound of body weight. You could scale up to one gram per pound of body weight. I think that's fine. <laughs> Dietary fat total per day, 50 to 80 grams, somewhere in there. Sometimes people will hit a hundred. It's lower, but it's not so low. It's going to screw with your hormones and you're spraying everything with Pam and eating egg whites and making your life miserable. You can have some fat. It's going to be okay. Yeah. And then I'll titrate carbohydrate amount to depend on their goal of body comp versus performance. If their goal is just all out performance, it's bro, just eat as many carbs as you can. Now, if body comp starts going south, we're going to have to pull back on that a little bit. And then if they're really a weight class athlete where they're really trying to maximize body comp and performance, Then I start getting into prioritizing carbohydrates more around like the heavier lifting days or high intensity training. So a split I use a lot of times is lifting or high intensity work, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, some cardio type stuff, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday is typically just a complete off unload day, just do a long walk or a nice hike or something like that. In those cases, if they're really trying to push body comp and performance, I will have higher carbohydrate amounts Monday, Wednesday, Friday-ish, and then lower amounts Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. I may even do, oh gosh, like some fasted cardio, low intensity on the mornings in those days. So we're trying to upregulate fat use a little bit more on those days, get some recovery in. We don't want calories so low that we're going to impede recovery, but we have a limited amount of carbohydrates to spend. So I'm going to try to spend those per se more on the days where they're going to be using more carbohydrates. So they're a little bit more uh, fueled for their lifting sessions. 
And then if you really start having to really crush calories, I do find that nutrient timing does appear to be more beneficial then. So we initially will have more carbohydrates leading up to the session. That could be the night before, it could be the morning of, just depends on what's going on. So we want to have good muscle glycogen that's restored. Maybe some carbohydrates during the session, depending on the goal, depending on how long it is. Maybe some after, and then after that point, we'll probably pull back on them a little bit. So it's just like kind of, if you have a certain amount of budget, how much are you going to spend and where does the most realistic place to get the biggest bang for your buck to spend them? Yeah. Awesome. I love that. And that, that sounds like it would be pretty standard across the board. Obviously we're talking athlete population there, but even just the general population too, right? For yeah. somebody who's maybe they're only able to train, I don't know, call it Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, or something like that, just due to like work schedule and kids and life and whatnot. So in that situation, would you pull just like a similar process there? Just reduce the carbohydrate on the off days kind of thing? Yeah, especially if their goal is body comp. It's funny, like the more I work with, I worked with a lot of general population in the past, not as much now. But a lot of the work with athletes and general population, you can probably speak to this too, isn't really that different. The concepts are literally the same. Now the amounts and what they're doing and the level of detail you get to, yeah, those are sometimes completely different worlds. Yeah. But the ideas and the concepts don't really change that much. And what I found was the extremes inform the means. So even now, like I'll program for a very high level athlete. And then if someone is more recreational or even just getting into the sport, I'll just start pulling stuff out of their training and I can get back down to a moderate level. I can't really take a moderate level and try to scale that up to an elite level athlete. It just doesn't seem to work that well. Right. So as a, a tall dude, you know, this, when you use exercise equipment, like the new rule of exercise equipment is. Let's make it as well as possible for very short people and very tall people. Anyone in between, it'll be fine for. If we try to make it for this stereotypical male, five foot 10, anything outside of that is just going to suck. <laughs> <laughs> so if you design for those extremes, the, the mean in the middle will take care of itself. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I love that. No, I, and, and I guess my, the only other question there, I keep flip-flopping back and forth. And I, I know you said like, it would depend on the goal and if performance was the main goal or, or whatnot, but do you worry about impacting recovery on off days for athletes? If you are stripping away some carbs or is that just par for the course? It's just part of the deal because you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if in a perfect world, right there, you would find the happy balance where their body comp is fine. And then you wouldn't really cut carbohydrates on the recovery days, right? Because I, what I've noticed is at some point, it's not a linear thing where in a perfect world, if someone's, Hey, you know, I want to gain you know, a couple of pounds of muscle. I'm a natural athlete. I've been training for two to four years already. Yeah. In those cases, like I just do almost the same thing every day, whether you're training or not, because I find that's beneficial. You're going to need the fuel, et cetera. Where it gets tricky is when you're talking about body comp, now you're trading off performance on one hand, body comp on the other side. It's like walking the tightrope. Like you're trying to find the happy medium. And unfortunately, it's just different for everyone. Like I wish I could give a formula based off of someone's FFMI or just muscle mass and be like, bro, you definitely need 300 grams of carbs this day and 120 the next day. And it just doesn't work that way. Like I've had athletes who are literally almost the same size in the same sport, on the same team, and their carbohydrate amounts may be 
100 to 200 grams different per day yeah. and you're just like that just seems to be the way it goes <laughs> yeah wouldn't life be easy for people like me and you if there was just a template yeah and i think with protein you can get pretty close fat you can get close but i don't know like carbohydrate amounts just it varies widely i have a pretty high level obstacle course racer where off season he's very lean we got up to 450 grams of carbs per day. He, yeah. I think his peak weight was 160 pounds. Wow. And I've got athletes that are twice his size on half that amount of carbohydrates. So it's, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hey, that's where you come in. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> where the pro comes in. So no, that's great, man. I think that that explains things really well. And people will have some usable, I think, info and tools to take from that. So the thing that, I wanted to get into pretty, we'll see what we got time for today pretty extensively yeah. though, which is super interesting to me. I don't know if it's new, but your concept of uh, physiological flexibility. So can you just explain exactly what you're referring to when you're talking about physiological flexibility? Sure. So after I started working on metabolic flexibility about 15 years ago, probably maybe four or five years after that, I started thinking, I'm like, okay, so that's cool for metabolism. You could expand metabolic flexibility to include lactate and ketones and other intermediates, et cetera. But what about if we take that idea and we scale it up to you as just a physiologic organism? Yeah, okay. Right. So what framework am I going to use? So what do I, how do I believe that the body operates? And my bias is I believe the body operates basically off of survival. Your body is literally wired to do everything it possibly can in order to survive. And even if you want a higher level of performance, you just generally have to teach the body to survive it better. There's the whole point of adaptation, exercise, allostatic load, blah, 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 all these fancy words. Yep. But at the end of the day, there's backup systems to the backup systems to the backup systems, right? Because your body still has to function and it's trying to keep you upright. Like to me, it's fascinating that very minor details in elite level athletes can make a huge difference. Now, granted, you're talking about tens to you know hundreds of a second make a big difference. So that, okay, I got it. On the other end of the spectrum, you could probably live on 7-Eleven Slurpees as your only meal every day for months to maybe years. Now, would you be healthy? No. Is that the best thing to do? Absolutely not. I don't recommend anybody run that experiment. <laughs> but you've seen people's dietary logs and you're like, bro, how long have you been eating this way? They're like, I don't know, most of my life. And the fact that they're there talking to you upright with some semblance of health is just fascinating. If I put sugar in the gas tank in my car, I'm not even going to make it around the block. Right. So the extreme nature of what the body can tolerate is just fascinating. Now their insulin may be all whack. They might be type two diabetic. They're definitely going to have some issues going on. But so if the body's survival based, then we we have the basic stuff covered. So sleep is good. Nutrition is good. Exercise is generally good. What is the, the, the next level? Like, how do you come up with a framework or systems? You can tell my background is also in engineering that allows us to evaluate all the other bazillion different things that could be coming at people. Do I put bread light on my ball sack? Do I do this breathing technique? Do I do this supplement or this super food that's only harvested in the Amazon by local people there with piranhas stuck to their ass like once a month or all these crazy things that like the 
fitness world comes up with. Yeah. Like, how do you figure out what framework can you use to decide what is that sort of next level? Again, if we go back to survival-based, I looked at what systems then in your body, does it have to hold constant? And if it doesn't hold constant, you're dead. And you come up with temperature. Humans are homeotherms. We have to keep around 98.6, effective about 97.7 degrees Fahrenheit, internal body core temperature. If we don't do that, it varies even just a few degrees, you're dead. However, we have these huge amount of adaptive capabilities to tolerate warmer temperatures, especially due to exercise, environmental conditions, colder temperatures, even with the absence of technology. Humans, probably the only real advantage we have is big brains and our ability to regulate temperature. A lot of other animals aren't really good at regulating temperature as well as humans are. You'll find extremes where some animals are really good in heat or some animals are really good in cold. But to go from the range of where they can go, again, that HDR, human dynamic range, humans are probably the best at that. And the second one would be pH. Our blood has to stay within a very fine level of pH. If it doesn't, enzyme reactions, a whole bunch of shit hits the fan, so that's not good. However, you could do some horrible wind gates, some 30 seconds all out and repeat that. Have high levels of lactic acid in my little air quotes, which is lactate plus literally hydrogen ions. Like you're literally dumping acid into your muscle and into the bloodstream and your body can handle that. Doesn't feel good. Feels absolutely horrible, but you can handle pretty high insults of that. A third would be fuel systems, right? Everything from fats to carbohydrates in between. And fourth would be just simply air, regulation of oxygen and carbon dioxide. So those would be the four kind of homeostatic regulators. And I think if you train within those areas, which doesn't mean that has to be the only thing you're doing, but if you're training within those, you're not looking to change the baseline level. I'm not looking to really alter my pH chronically over time. I'm looking to expand this physiologic headroom, like how low a pH can I go? How high a pH can I go and still be able to function? Just like we know people, if you ever do any heat acclimation, you know, we've been in Costa Rica before, your first day there sucks horribly. Like two weeks later, you're like, yeah, it sucks, but it's not quite as bad as it was day one, right? You acclimate, you get a little bit used to it. Your systems upregulate, they're better able to handle these differences on both sides of the spectrum totally yeah i just experienced that i was down in mexico for two weeks and oh nice yeah the first week i mean we were there for a fitness and nutrition retreat so it was workouts in the oh, morning was that the don con yeah don con nice. so yeah so just returned back from that last week but same thing right i was there two weeks it was like first week was pretty miserable you're just yeah. sweating <laughs> you're just dying i'm lightheaded i'm feeling when to pass out during the workouts all that stuff just from the heat when yeah. the workouts were fairly intense but nothing that i wouldn't be able to get through on a normal day and and then the next week i was like i just it was like flip switched or switch flipped i was like just not sweating as much, not as fatigued, all those different things. And yeah, it's amazing what the body can acclimate to once you put it under those stressors. So I guess, what are you doing for the average human being to try to push this flexibility? That's a good question. I Usually when people hear that, their assumption is, oh my God, I got to go buy a sauna or I got to hang out in cold water immersion right. for 10 minutes a day and I got to do all these heinous things. And, you know, you flash forward to the video of Laird Hamilton who put the, the salt bike in a sauna and is in there with oven mitts <laughs> doing shit. I want to see his belly button. I don't think he's human anyway. But it, at an extreme end, if you're someone like Laird has been doing this shit for many years and that's part of your life, 
yeah, you might get there. But the benefit is most people have almost zero adaptation to a lot of this stuff. Look at temperature. People you know, think I'm bonkers because I live in Minnesota. I'm like, yeah, you live in Arizona, but you run from one air conditioned thing to the next air conditioned thing. Like you don't exercise outside. You're not even ever outside. It's not that much different than being in Minnesota in the winter. It's just the opposite direction. And over time, just due to adaptation, you adapt to your environment. For example, in Minnesota, even people who are not outside a lot, like it'll get cold starting in winter in November, definitely December. And you're like, oh man, it was so nice. It was 70 degrees Fahrenheit the other day. And oh, it's 50 degrees today. It's cold. And oh, it hit freezing at 32. This is horrible. But then on, after you get through winter and spring, like the first spring day, it hits 50 degrees. You're like, ah, shit, it's t-shirt weather. Woohoo, this is amazing. And these are people who generally are not outside a whole lot either. Yep. Yeah, and your body is going to adapt to that, that stimulus. So the good part is most people are not adapted to it that much. Therefore, just if you're new to training, you might be able to curl soup cans and make progress. You don't need a lot of load. You don't need to do anything aggressive because your entry level is is low and you haven't done a lot of work for adaptation. For people with heat, a lot of times I tell them like, hey, just go exercise outside if you're in a warm environment. You don't need to give yourself heat stroke. Be intelligent about it. It doesn't need to be crazy, but it may just be go outside in the morning where it's 70, 80 degrees, not at noon where it's 110. Maybe go for a run, do some kettlebell stuff, whatever. Like just do something in heat. You don't need technology per se. Uh, take a cold shower. That can be beneficial on the cold side. Start at 10 seconds. Just, you don't need to be crazy. With like pH stuff, you can play around with like breathing drills. You don't even necessarily need to do it during exercise. You could do a Wim Hof, like super ventilation method where you're just breathing really fast or you're doing a breath hold. Again, if you do either one of those techniques, start lying down, don't do it anywhere near water. You don't want a shallow water blackout. You can literally die from that. But if you're lying down, worst case you pass out you're already on the floor anyway like the, you're not going to go anywhere like you you will remember how to breathe so you don't need to do a lot of stimulation usually i tell people just pick one area that that sounds the best to them and then just start there and once you get pretty good at that maybe add another area and as you get more experience you can start combining stuff maybe if you're more experienced you're gonna do a little bit of breath work in the sauna, right? Obviously under controlled conditions, make sure you know what you're doing, et cetera. So you can stack some of these things together or like I'll take my rower and stick it outside when it's 90 degrees out and do some pretty horrible intervals. And then once I'm done, I'll go jump in some cold water immersion for two or three minutes. So you can combine some of these things together. And the nice part is it's not really going to add hours upon hours to your schedule. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So and what is exactly, I guess, the purpose for people to do this? It's just to expand your ability to for discomfort. Is it for health purposes? What exactly is, I guess, the, the main ad advantage of, of pushing that physiological flexibility for people? My bias is I think it'll just make you more resilient and harder to kill. With more advanced athletes, you will see that their recovery seems to get significantly better. They don't appear as quote in my air quotes fragile. If the temperature is off a little bit, they're fine. Temperature a little bit cooler, they're fine. They had to work a little bit harder than what they did the day before, they're fine. They didn't have their magical pre 40 grams of carbohydrates, whatever, don't care. They're still fine. They're just more 
resilient or anti-fragile to these small little changes that for other people will completely throw them off kilter. And then if you go really far down that rabbit hole, like some work we've done is looking at some of the differences between PTSD or PTG or post-traumatic growth. So if you go to the extreme with, for example, like some uh, military groups where odds are you may be experienced to very high level stressors. I think that if you are better with some of these uh, physiologic flexibility conditions, I would argue that would bias you more towards post-traumatic growth versus uh, PTSD. Now, again, I can't point to any study on that per se, but I think it's going to bias you to be better able to handle any other stressors that are coming at you and the stressor is still going to suck. But on the backside, you can have more growth from that versus having more negative effects. Yeah, I love that. Uh, yeah, just, yeah, the ability to adapt, right? Like you, yeah, you're you increasing your adaptability. Yeah, which is yeah, awesome. Which to me, it makes you more resilient. Yeah, no, 100%, right? And even just on the small scale, it's again, it just came back from Mexico. So there's some people that as soon as they hit that heat, it they, it shuts them down, right? Like, mm -hmm. I, I cannot do this. I'm going to die, basically, <laughs> is the way people feel, right? Somebody who's maybe able to adapt to this stuff a little bit better, it does. I think it just, like you said, it just enhances your ability to do things at a higher level and, I guess, deal with that comfort on a higher level as well. I, I love that idea of the fact that, especially for the athlete or somebody who's playing like an outdoor sport or something. Yeah. And a lot of times it's, you see those guys in the NFL and they go down to Florida and half the team's cramping up within the first, whatever quarter of the game, and it becomes a real issue. So yeah, maybe if they do have a little bit more of that physiological flexibility, then you're just a little bit more adaptable in that situation and a little bit more available and a little bit more useful. So I love that. Yeah. And one of the things I pulled for the course was, I'm like, okay, so elite level athletics do a very good job of tracking stuff. And there's also huge money involved. So I look to see that for altitude, for example, is that really an advantage, right? So you have the Denver Broncos who play in Denver, you have the Utah Jazz who play at a higher elevation. And there's actually some pretty impressive studies. And in general, I think there's like three studies that looked at this. All three of them agreed that across different sports, at least for altitude, right? Because your partial pressure of oxygen is going to change. The teams who played and practiced at altitude in all cases had an advantage. That wasn't a massive advantage, but it was enough that it was statistically a big advantage. So there was some very interesting uh, data on that. I love it. All right. So that's good. And you brought up a little bit of like hot, cold, the breath holding, things like that. Is there any other like main tactics that you're using to push people's adaptation to this physiological flexibility? Yeah, with nutrition, you can go to the next level. Something I'll do with advanced athletes is so with most people i start with what i call a macro matching meaning if you're doing primarily a heavy lifting session we're going to provide more carbohydrates so you have plenty of carbohydrates so your performance is good if you look at the literature there's some very interesting stuff on the you know, they call sleep low train high and vice versa all these different strategies and in general what they find is that if you do a very hard interval session on lower glycogen. So you're actually removing some carbohydrates from the system. Your performance acutely is not nearly as good. It's not really a shocker. 
but your body appears to upregulate kind of these molecular adaptations to a higher degree than if you had carbohydrates present. So the model I use is a macro matching for a U-stress model. So U-stress, E-U-stress, meaning that you could train on Monday, Tuesday's an easy day in your back, you can train again on Wednesday. So stress you can generally recover from in a shorter period of time. A distress session would be stress that takes you much longer to recover from. So again, using just athletes as an example, if you compete in the CrossFit games and you've got three days, you're just going to get the crap kicked out of you. That's definitely a distress session or Olympic weightlifting meet, a big game, et cetera. A lot of times in-season athletes are a little bit different, but you have time to recover on the back end. And the only thing that really matters on that day is absolute performance on that day. So with a distress model, you can actually have a macro mismatching where you may do a high intensity session that the fuel is primarily carbohydrates, but you're going to do various levels of restriction of those carbohydrates, not necessarily for acute performance, which will actually be worse, but you want to upregulate some of those adaptations so that when you come back in a couple of weeks, couple of days, whatever, and provide the carbohydrates, you hopefully will be at a little bit of a higher baseline than what you were before because these molecular adaptations will translate into performance. Sounds amazing in theory. The, the research on it is probably about split, like 50% down the middle. Uh, Marquette did a really great study published in MedSci 2016 that showed massive increases with that kind of approach. And these are pretty high-level athletes. Body comp got better. Performance got better. Gill did another study that was similar, but not quite the same, didn't see those performance increases. So right now it's mixed. Again, my bias is probably worth doing with advanced athletes in an off-season basis. If you think they're getting close to a plateau, take a couple of weeks, do some method like that, come back to your normal training. If you increased it, great. You look like a wizard. You're amazing. If it wasn't better... Eh, it's off season. You don't have a big game. You maybe lost a couple of weeks, probably not that huge of a deal. So there are different ways you can set up trying to maximize these adaptations. So with the physiologic flexibility, what that may look like is simply doing a longer period of fasting on a day you're actually going to do weight training. So that would be step one. So going into it, your liver glycogen is going to be lower, but if you haven't done a lot of muscular work, muscle glycogen will still be there you should still be able to perform quite well during that session. If that goes well and you want to take it to the next level, now you might do some horrible stuff like repeated wind gates or just like these high intensity 30 second out type things later in the day, just have some protein, go to bed and then get up the next day and do some heinous like high intensity stuff. So now you've depleted liver glycogen, you've depleted muscle glycogen but you're asking the muscle to do this high output task again. So that'd be some ways of gradiating it to a more extreme type of approach. Yeah, that's cool. I like that idea. And yeah, like you said, if, if the literature is mixed on that, it would be interesting. But it, it also does, it, it makes sense as like an athlete and someone who's pushed, like has pushed themselves to those points, right? It's if you could create some kind of a hyper response. Yeah, that would be incredible. If that was a tool that you used once in a while, then I think that would be super cool. So yeah, I like that. And then just for the record, I think just because I have a lot of people that have a hard time with the protein intake, I don't think sure. you're talking about going super low protein. <laughs> no. <I'm trying. laughs> this is the carbs and fat thing, correct? 
<laughs> yeah, I do have some people when they're doing a fast like that, they won't really consume any protein during their fast. And the, actually, I've tried both. And my initial thought years ago with fasting was, oh my God, all your muscles going to fall off your body. Don't do this. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of in my life. Yeah. And then I started looking at the research to try to disprove that. I was like, oh, there is some interesting research. And then talking to protein researchers like Stu Phillips and others, if you're doing some exercise on a completely day where you're completely fasted, no calories, you're probably neutral towards muscle. You're probably not losing a ton of muscle for a short period of time. You're definitely not gaining as much muscle on that day. Yep. So I'd say it's probably neutral-ish. And I played around with like protein only on a certain day and cutting out all carbs and fat. And it was very confusing. And I just got way hungrier. And so did everyone else. Like everyone who did it, it was just much harder to do it. Because there was something weird about once you start eating, even if you were just eating protein, you just wanted to eat more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Totally. So from a simplistic strategy, again, we're probably on an extreme case doing it only like once a week. Most other times you're having protein every you know two to four hours. Uh, I've been it as a, a neutral event, but I do agree if someone came and said, yeah, I want to absolutely maximize my ability to gain lean body mass muscle as fast as humanly possible without drugs. I would not have them do fasting. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. And that's, it's interesting too, because that's my experience with fasting as well. Like I did it for probably a few years at least. Hmm. And yeah, man, I just found it way, once you start eating, so even if it's just that you have something small, you have a protein shake, whatever it might be, it does spark the appetite. Yes. It does, it does seem to be just a lot easier just to gain from it until you're, you're given time and then pick it back up. Right. Yeah. I have, I have the exact same experience with that as well. Yeah. And your microphone got a little quiet there. Maybe it's something on my end. Oh, hopefully not. Or hopefully everybody heard me, but I guess we'll see. Not all edited out. <laughs> but all right, Mike. And then what one other thing I want to touch on. We got a couple minutes. Can you just explain for people? I, I think now you're in terms of HRV, you're probably one of the most knowledgeable guys out there on HRV. This is something that's being provided now to people through Apple Watches, Whoop Straps, Aura Rings. Yep. I don't think a lot of people know what they're looking at in terms of numbers, right? I don't think Correct. they understand how to interpret the data. Can you just give us a quick breakdown on HRV and how people can use that to their benefit? Sure. With HRV, it is like everywhere now, which again is a pro and a con. So far to date, I've lost like almost every HRV contract I've had an initial call with. Because it always goes, hey, we've got this idea for HRV. We're going to stuff it in this watch and we're going to measure it like every five minutes and tell the user this and that. And I'm like, that's a stupid idea, right? Because with without context, it's not going to mean anything. What if they're exercising? It says you're like super sympathetic and stressed out. Yeah, I just did 30 seconds on this stupid ass rower in the middle of my driveway in the heat. Of course, I'm going to be stressed out. That's actually what I would want to see. If I couldn't increase my heart rate for that event, something's wrong. So it's a good technology. And even if it's accurate, the biggest issue now is that it's sexy and people are just putting it in every device and there's no regard or there's very little regard for context. So for most people, probably 90% of people, 90 plus percent of cases, 
Make sure that the system you're using can accurately measure heart rate variability. The second part is you probably only want to do it once per day. Most of the time, first thing in the morning, if you're doing a commanded measurement or have it gather like an aura ring, which I have, I've got a Garmin, I use iFleet, I use different devices, have it gather that information when you're most stable, which is going to be during the course of the night. Now, there are some pros and cons about gathering information overnight. For example, the aura ring for HRV is very accurate, but if your sleep is changing a lot, Obviously, that's going to impact your heart rate variability. It's going to impact the data time that you're gathering it for. If you're a high-level athlete and your resting heart rate at night is 37 beats per minute, your HRV and aura is probably not going to change much because of fancy term is what some call parasympathetic saturation. You just have so much parasympathetic tone that these other stressors don't show up that much. So you may have to do a commanded measurement of some kind first thing in the morning, normally seated or even standing. But for most people, Aura works pretty good. If your resting heart rate is in the 60s and you're looking at just general stresses, you're not trying to really change your training per day. You just want a rough marker of what's going on. HRV through Aura can actually be pretty useful. But at the end of the day, HRV will only tell you the status of your autonomic nervous system at the time of the measurement. So the autonomic nervous system has the parasympathetic branch, which is rest and digest, like pushing down in the brake of your car, as a sympathetic branch, which is a stress increase in heart rate, pushing down on the gas pedal of the car. So when you do a measurement first thing in the morning, it's giving you an idea of what is the status of your nervous system. And I find that super useful because a lot of people are not sure. They don't know if their training did it the next day, or they just don't really know where they're at. And they keep going. If, if they're a high-level athlete in general, what they do is they push too hard and they fry themselves. In general population, it's normally their outside stressors that are the main issue that are causing stress to their life. But training is the only thing they can really change. But either way, having an idea of where you're at becomes useful. The downside of heart rate variability is it won't tell you what stressor is the main one. So again, going back to context, I primarily use the iFleet system so instead of athlete, it's iFleet. And then you have these little slider switch each morning that you adjust to self-report of how your sleep was, how your energy, how your training, and you can type in a few notes. To me, that's super useful when I look at it from online clients of all types, because now I can see what was their stress level, what's their resting heart rate, and then what is the context? So what pattern keeps showing up again? If their HRV was real low, they're very stressed. And each day of the three days, it says their sleep was piss poor. Great. Now I know we're probably going to try to do some intervention with sleep. Or if they say my nutrition was horrible, or I just feel really tired. It gives me an idea and a direction to go to try to figure it out, do some type of intervention. And then we can look to see, oh, did their stress level get better over time or did it change? So they get some feedback on that system, which I find is super useful. So even for general population, it's harder to get them to do an intervention and just be like, oh, just trust me, this will work. They want to see some influence on it. Like sleep is a good example. They're like, oh, I give up watching Netflix for two hours at night before I go to bed. It's night three of doing this. I don't really feel any better. Oh, but look, my heart rate variability is better the last two days. Oh, okay. So it is showing me that I'm less stressed. I don't quite feel it, but I'll go with it because I can see a marker of progress that's actually happening. I love it. Yeah. And in terms of HRV, are you, each person will have what's normal for them or are we looking for highs and lows? 
Yeah, the, each system will use a different way of doing it. Yeah. So, for example, iFleet system will measure between 1 and 100. It'll do the measurement, and then it translates it to a 1 to 100 scale just because that's more meaningful for people. Yeah. Yeah. Aura Ring will do what's called a time domain analysis, and it gives it to you in milliseconds. Other systems may present it a little bit different way. So it's hard to take one system's reading and transfer to another system. Also, the position you get the data in, seated, standing, lying down. Did you get it off of what stage of sleep? Was it an aggregate of sleep? All those things make it hard to compare numbers. And in general, yeah, there's population data. There's things of you're a little bit too low or too high. But most of it is going to be changes relative to your normal. So what I tell people a lot of times is just get a baseline for two, ideally three weeks, which I know is hard to do because they want to see the measurement and they want to see a change, but just do at least give me two weeks and then we can see where you're at. And then we're looking for changes up or down. Are you becoming more stressed or are you becoming less stressed off of your baseline? And if you have a very poor HRV, we may then look at three or six months. Over three to six months was the trend line kind of going up. Or was it going down? We can try to make some assessments and changes off of that chronically too. Very cool. Yeah, good. That's a that's the thing I just wanted to cover because I know a lot of people are the HRV is something that is being provided to them, but they don't know what they're looking at in terms of the data, so it gets a little bit jumbled. And then yeah, people are getting really swayed in terms of because that's the thing that gets me about that is I, I know like you're a big data guy, you're measuring everything. Like you said, you got the metabolic cart sitting in the yeah. garage, <laughs> but I hate because again, like I've had whoops, I've had auras, I've had yep. whatever, you name it. And maybe this is just stubbornness or stupidity on my end, but I hate letting something like that get determine my output for the day, right? So I found yes. a weird correlation between when my whoop strap said my recovery was shit, I felt amazing on those days. When my, when my strap said my recovery was great, those were some of my worst days energy wise. And so I got to the point where I was like, what if I'm going to follow this thing every time it tells me I need to take a rest, I don't know if this is the best thing for me just based off of my own personal feeling, right? Um, it's like a, a tricky thing and a slippery slope. Now, for somebody like you who's literally researched this for half of their life, um, I think obviously you're, you're a professional at this. When you're putting this stuff into the hands of your average Joe who wakes up in the morning, drinks too much coffee, goes to work, sits for 10 hours, might get a workout in, watches too much TV at night, like you said, is this a necessary, is this something that where when you wake up in the morning and your aura ring says that your uh, recovery is low? Is that something where you go, oh, I can't train today, I can't, I got to take the day off. And that's the only thing that gets me is it's like when we're talking high level athletes and people who know 100% how to interpret the data, it's one thing, right? But I think it's, it's again, sometimes you get that paralysis by analysis. If you're just trying to hang on all these different whatever technologies and stuff before you take care of like the lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, no, I actually agree with that. Like when I started using heart rate variability, God, probably 10 plus years ago, I was looking at it in the lab starting 15 years ago. I just applied it to my general clients, general population clients, because I just wanted more data. My hypothesis at that point was exactly what you said. It's not going to be useful. Bro, you just need to go to the gym and do some lifting for crying out loud. Have a chicken breast, go do something, right? Which is true. But I wanted more data just to see what was going on. And what I realized with the general population was I had more leverage to get them to do the other things that I wanted them to do 
because of the awareness, right? And I may not in those cases change their training. I may be like, okay, let's try to have you actually eat like some whole foods instead of cheese doodles before you go to the gym, right? right? Oh, wow. My HRV was better. My performance in the gym didn't feel so hard. Cool. Let's have you try to make your bedroom darker at night, turn a fan on so you have white noise. Like I would try to do these other lifestyle interventions and then they would see their stress wasn't as bad. Oh, okay, cool. Training a lot of times, unless I had to, would be the thing I wouldn't change. Now, again, the caveat is, you will run into some clients where they're like, bro, I don't tell you, I don't care what I like my cheese doodles. Fans are stupid. Trying to get them to do any lifestyle change is almost impossible. So in that case, I would be like, okay, let's have you still go to the gym, but let's just do half the volume you did before. Right. So I unfortunately would cave and modify some of their training more or less because I didn't want them to long-term just burn out and get completely frustrated with the whole thing and just if I can all screw it, throw the towel in, uh, that type of thing. And then for higher level athletes, it's almost the inverse. Like I'm using HRV to have them, bro, just stop training today. You can do a rest day on Sunday. Like all your gains won't disappear. I promise you, you'll be fine. And in your case, like assuming HRV is accurate, you are correct that for acute level performance, Generally, if you are more stressed or are a little bit more on the sympathetic side, your performance in that session is normally better, which makes sense, right? You are a little bit more stressed, so your output in that session can be better. If you get really too high parasympathetic, your performance is dog shit. It's bad. However, if you get a little bit parasympathetic, that's the, the happy medium range. Quick story. I did something really stupid when I was doing heart rate variability. I thought that the more parasympathetic you were, the more recovered you were. And so I started watching this each day. I started doing, I was training for a strongman competition and I didn't have any implements. I wasn't able to get to a gym. It's the middle of winter. I'm training in my garage. So I said, okay, 225 on a trap bar for sets of 25 will simulate some of my medley training as best I could. So I started doing that for multiple sets. It was just freaking horrible doing four sets of that. I wanted to carve my right eyeball out at the end of the day. But I would look at my HRV the next day and I'm like, holy shit, my HRV went up by like 12 points. That's crazy. And then I would do it again the following week. And then I was an idiot and I started doing it twice a week and HRV kept going up. But then four weeks into this little experiment, I felt like I got hit by a truck. I'm like, dude, I've been sleeping 11 hours a night. I've been eating everything in sight. I feel like crap. All my other lifts are dog shit. I'm like, this HRV is like the stupidest thing. Like, why am I studying this stuff? And when I looked at the trend over those four weeks, it was straight down. But acutely, the next day, it would go up. But 36 to 48 hours later, it would drop well below baseline. So the mistake I made was putting too much emphasis on each individual day, not looking at the overall trend of what was actually going on. So it's... That's why I'm not a huge fan of looking only at the aggregate score because it can lead you down some bad paths at times. I love that. No, good, man. I'm glad I brought that up then because that, that yeah. uh, that's super helpful. No, that, that's good to know. And also, too, I like that look more to the lifestyle adjustments that can be made as opposed to every day you need a rest day kind of thing. It's now you need a, yeah. an adjustment here. <laughs> Yeah. And there are times where if it's a high level athlete and they're red and their average is good, I'll be like, yeah, go to the gym and see if you can set a PR and I'll cut your volume in about a third of what it normally is. And they're like, 
what you're an idiot my hrv is rad i'm like just trust me because i know they're very sympathetic and when they do it they're like yeah i got a pr i got really close perfect so i'd add another rest day the day after and we continue on with their, their training cycle and the reason for that is they were very sympathetic their average was okay so i know they can handle a little bit more acute stress and then if they happen to show up red like the day before a competition which most of the time they do i'm like hey remember that last time eight weeks ago we did this your hrv was red what happened oh i went to the gym and hit a pr yeah exactly you'll be fine don't worry about it because at the back end of the competition most of the time you can take multiple days off so i'm not worried about accumulated fatigue at that point I've done the experiment. They've already shown to themselves that this is not going to impair my performance. If anything else, it may help my performance. So that kind of gets rid of that sort of negative potential mental aspect out of it too. Totally. No, that's amazing. And yeah, it makes perfect sense, right? That more sympathetic you are, the better the performance is going to be. Especially for speed and power, like strength type based sports. Yeah. Totally. Amazing. Awesome. No, I'm glad we covered this then. So yeah, awesome. I could talk your off all day, but I'm gonna I'm gonna let you get on with it today. Yeah, you got forty thousand other things on the go right now. So you got <laughs> a to go right or a kite board to surf or something like that. So. Yeah, a couple things. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I I appreciate you being on, man. You are an absolute wealth of knowledge. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Oh, where should everybody find uh, your info? The best place is the main website is mikeTNelson.com. So you'll be able to get on in the newsletter. Most of the information I have right now goes out over the newsletter. So there'll be some opt-ins you can get in there on the newsletter. Tell me you heard me on this podcast, some email reply, and I'll send you a cool free gift. Also have a podcast, which you've been a guest on, which is awesome. That's the Flex Diet Podcast. And then Instagram is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Perfect. All right, everybody, if you haven't already, go look Mike up because it's nothing but good factual information on there and obviously everything you just told us today was incredible thanks a lot for being on mike and and we'll definitely see you around yeah thank you so much greatly appreciate it awesome. you got it please note that this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice diagnosis or treatment the information shared on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be used as a replacement for the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider. Additionally, the opinions and strategies discussed on this podcast are those of the guests and host and do not necessarily represent the views or endorsement of the podcast or its creators. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.